Welcome back, you guys. This is week three of Creative Compile Me for the New Testament. And this week, there are good things in store. This, we're only covering one chapter, and it is the first chapter of the Gospel of John. If you're not familiar with John's Gospel yet, you're going to love it. It's a little harder. In fact, I often call it like the AP version of the Gospels. Because the first three, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, meaning you can see them the same. They, they have a lot of the same stories and the same basic you know, message told from different vantage points. But the Gospel of John is a little bit different. Uh, it focuses more on the doctrine. Its target audience was mostly those who are already baptized members of the faith, those who are already Christians and those who are struggling. <laughs> I just, it felt like, it felt like our time. Because as I was reading the Bible dictionary and the guide to the scriptures, you can find all this in the notes, but I love the way they described John's reason for writing this gospel because there was apostasy that was running rampant in the church. There were people leaving the Christian faith. In addition to that, they're getting persecuted by those outside of their faith and they're struggling under the weight of it. And it reminded me of what we have in our world today. <laughs> there are a lot of people who want to hold on to their faith and they're struggling. In fact, I just a couple months ago, I was on the timeout for women's stage with Sister Dalton and I heard somebody had asked in the audience. So the moderator asked Sister Dalton, why do you stay? And her answer to me was so profound and so simple. I wish I could quote it to you, but she basically said she had seen things that she had to testify of, that it was in her so deeply. She talked about how she had seen a prophet at work, how she'd seen the Quorum of the Twelve at work. She'd seen Revelation take action in the leadership of the church, and she'd seen it in her own heart. And her simplicity and power in that testimony told everyone in that gigantic audience why she was willing to stay, because she's seen enough. And I feel like that's John's message. John's gospel is to those who are already members who might be shaking in their faith. And he wants to go back and look at the stories of Jesus and tell them from a softer, more doctrinal vantage point. So he teaches beautiful stories that you don't find in any other gospel. And he teaches them so simply and so profoundly that it will, it will shake you and his testimony will settle into your heart and help ground your own. I'm telling you, you're going to love John. So some, a few things you want to know about John. He's the brother of James. He's one of the sons of thunder. You know, he was a fisherman who was turned a disciple of John the Baptist, who then turns to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and eventually is called to be an apostle. He is someone who is has humble beginnings and grows in strength and wisdom, just like all the other apostles. And he's remarkable. He's the one that asks after the Savior's life to be able to stay on the earth until the second coming because he wants to get this message out. He is remarkable in every possible way. He's part of the first presidency of the church, basically with Peter and James, and he sees miracles that even some of the other apostles don't see. So his witness of the saviors is unique and it's powerful and you're going to love it. So get your scriptures, get your notes, you guys, let's get started. Where the other gospel writers start us at the beginning of Jesus' mortal story, John takes us much farther back, and he takes you to the beginning of the beginning. In fact, it'll sound a lot like Genesis, because that's where he starts. In verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And two, the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything that was made. In these three tiny intro verses, he's teaching us some really big doctrine, that Christ is the Word. President Nelson calls Christ the expression of God the Father, meaning when God the Father has this grand plan and this great plan of happiness for his children, Jesus Christ is the expression of that. He's getting that plan and putting it into action. He is the Word. What I love that we learned in this last conference, I think it's from Elder Eddie, he was talking about trying the virtue of the Word of God, and he talked about how the Word is two things. I think he was quoting Elder Bednar at the time, but he basically said that when you see that phrase, the Word, it can mean a name of Christ, or it can mean the gospel of Christ. And that's basically what Joseph Smith teaches us in the Joseph Smith translation. In fact, just like I told you the last couple weeks, whenever you open a new book of scripture in the New Testament, Take some time to highlight all the JSTs in the footnotes and then mark their little letters that are up in the verses because there's so much in John 1 that's given clarification when you read it through the lens of Joseph Smith. So for example, in verse 1, that you could parse up and try and sort out, Joseph Smith makes it really clear. In fact, what he says in verse 1 is, in the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word meaning both, right? It's the Savior Jesus Christ and his gospel. They were both in the beginning and they were both with God. And the word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. John's big message over and over again throughout his book is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In fact, you're going to hear John reference God the Father more than any other book. He'll have the Savior talking about God the Father over and over again. I think 20 times in his book. So that emphasis is strong, and you're going to see it right out of the gate, that this Jesus Christ who walked among them was the Son of God. And not just that, but that he is the creator of the world. <laughs> this is where you see in three, that all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Meaning he had his fingers on every single piece. I love this because of how he teaches. When you look at the Savior's ministry, he often teaches with objects or with reference to the physical world around them. He references fish and trees and mustard seeds and mountains, and he, his brushstrokes are all over all of those creations. In fact, one of my favorite thoughts is that he, as he was creating the world, probably thought forward to how he would need to teach his gospel. Since we know that the gospel was there from the beginning and Christ was there from the beginning, that when he went to go create the world, he might have made a mustard seed the way that it is so that he could teach us about faith. Maybe he made trees with deep roots by rivers and streams so that he could teach us in the Old Testament all about this concept, right? He could reveal it to his prophets about how being deeply rooted by a stream is where you find life. You know, I just, I love thinking forward to all the doctrine we're going to study this year and all the mentions of the physical world, and then be thinking about how long the Savior's been waiting to teach why he made hens the way he made them, why he made fig trees the way he made them. I just think it's, it's like if you've ever been in a museum or you've heard you know, sometimes you can go to a museum and you can get that headpiece where you can listen to the artist's purposes behind their work, and you can understand at a deeper level why they painted what they painted. That's what I feel like the New Testament is. It's the Savior himself helping us understand why he made the world the way he did, and I just love it. Knowing that that's all through the authority of God the Father, that God the Father granted him this authority so that he could create a world that would teach us the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
remember, we learned that in the other scriptures, that all things denote there is a Christ, that there is a God out there. If you think about Alma and Korahor, this is what he's trying to teach Korahor. He's, he's trying to help him understand that there is evidence everywhere that there is a God. All things denote that he is real. And I think we're going to see that as we study the New Testament this year. So those are in those first three verses. When you go into four, you get even more. So this says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is when I think John's trying to help us understand that he didn't just create. He is the whole reason the world works. <laughs> he is all things. He is life. He is light. He is he is what helps everyone feel and experience things. But he warns that not everyone will see that light. So he says in five, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. This is really interesting to me because I feel like I call this ultraviolet light. It's the same thing. There are there is there are frequencies of light that we simply can't see with our natural eyes. But that doesn't mean they're not real. If you've ever been sunburned on a cloudy day at the beach, you know that that light is real. You just can't see it. And I think that's what John is warning us about. That there are going to be times when you're going to try and express what you know. You're going to try and testify of miracles you've seen, and not everyone will understand, and not everyone will see, because darkness comprehendeth it not. I think the Savior is a really good example of this. He spent his whole ministry speaking and teaching, knowing that many around him who heard and saw would not really see. Um, and he continued to beam out his ultraviolet light. And I love that about his ministry. You'll also learn in this chapter about John. So this isn't John the Apostle here that's writing the book, he's going to reference John the Baptist. So that's what you're going to get to next. When you look in 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is another witness of the pre-existence, right? They're saying that this man John was sent. We learn this when Zacharias testified about his son who would come, that would be John the Baptist. He was sent by God and his name was John. And John has a very specific task and it, it flows right in line with what we learned from Zacharias and Elizabeth. That same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. John's job is not to be the light, but to help others see it. I just, here's the visual that helped me understand this. You ever been outside on a super cloudy day, but it's still bright? You know, where there's just so much, it's so overcast that you really can't tell where the location of the sun even is. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but you know, like you can tell the sun must be out there, but you can't tell where it's coming from. And somebody who knows patterns, somebody who knows directions could actually identify. They could look at their watch and they could look at the directions around you and say, actually, the sun must be right there. That's kind of how I see John the Baptist. He is someone who, although everybody can see that there is light in the world, he's someone that can say, this is the source of the light. It's not me. Let me point you to the source. He's someone who knows his directions and he's got to watch and he says, I know that the source is right here. Let me tell you about him. His name is Jesus Christ. And then he teaches and he testifies. And so he bears witness. That's his role is to bear witness. So if you look in eight, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And then nine, and that light was true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John doesn't just testify of Jesus Christ. He's teaching every one of those people who becomes his disciples that they have light inside them too, that, that his light will ignite all of them. I think that's why John the Baptist is as successful as he is, is because he's not just a forerunner for Christ. He's a forerunner for Christ's gospel. And he teaches people how through repentance and through baptism, 
that spark that's in them can be ignited. Next, John's going to teach us about how everyone has a choice. It's kind of interesting the way he phrases it. He's looking back and talking about how when Jesus came, people didn't see him for who he was, or at least not everybody. You know, at some future point, when the Savior comes again, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. But in John's time, that's not the case. Everybody gets to think it through and consider his miracles and, and wonder and then choose. And so he talks about in 11, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But, and here's the part I love, big but, but as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This is the plan of salvation almost in one verse. He's saying those who chose to be disciples, those who chose to see him for who he was, they increased in power. And then he ties that power to grace. So if you go through the verses, you can see where he talks about how the Savior himself was full of grace and truth, and that everybody else around him increased in grace and truth. Grace is just the divine enabling power of God. So as the Savior grew from grace to grace, that's as he received power from God, he used it to bless and benefit others. There's a great BYU devotional from Richard Draper, I think is his name, it's in the notes, where he talks about this concept of grace for grace and grace to grace. This idea of getting divine enabling power from God the Father and then using it to do good, which then blesses him with more grace, and then he uses it to do good. And John talks about how that's how everybody grew. In 16, it says, and of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. This understanding that the reason the Savior taught these people was so that they could believe and they could become sons of God. It's a promise that we will one day become like him. And it's the exact same promise that President Nelson is giving us today, that every prophet has promised. In fact, if you go in just President Nelson's last talk, where he talks about overcoming the world and finding rest, this is the message, right? If you choose to be a disciple, if you choose to make covenants with him and keep them, if you choose to tether yourself to his promises, you will be blessed with power. You'll be blessed with grace, this divine enabling power to do whatever you need to do. And you can read President Nelson's quote in the notes to see what he offers, but the promises are staggering. And how can we pass those up? How can we choose not to see? And I think that's John's message as well, is that to those who will have eyes to see, there are wonders to behold. I also love what he says when you go in 17. He talks about the law of Moses being fulfilled. So he says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Again, there's more if you go into the Joseph Smith translation, but I think he's trying to teach them the same thing the Savior taught, that he fulfilled the law of Moses. He is the great Jehovah, and he's opening up a whole new covenant, a whole new testimony, a way to connect with him that is deeper and more meaningful individually, and he's going to teach us all about it. And then there's this interesting doctrine in 18. It says, No man hath seen God at any time, only the begotten Son, which was in the bosom of the Father, and he hath declared him. So this is tricky because there's a lot of people who, in other faiths, claim that that means Joseph Smith couldn't have seen God, or others couldn't have seen God because of this verse. This is why we have the Joseph Smith translation on this verse to teach us that really what this verse is saying is that when God the Father speaks on earth, it is to testify of the Son. In fact, there's a great quote from Joseph Fielding Smith about this, where he basically says that every time you even see the word God in Scripture, it basically is speaking of Jesus Christ. The only exception to that is when you hear 
God the Father testify of his son, Jesus Christ. So in key moments, like at the baptism of the Savior or in the first vision, that's when God the Father is present and known. But otherwise, we're hearing from Jehovah. So there's great clarification in the notes. But the thing I think I love the most as I was studying this week is a quote I found from President Benson. That even though God the Father so rarely appears and speaks on earth, there is a powerful promise from a prophet about how well we will know him. I just have to read it to you because it's so good. It's in the notes. He says, this is President Benson. Nothing is going to startle us more than when we pass through the veil to the other side than to realize how well we know our Father in heaven and how familiar his face is to us. Even though he is, he speaks so infrequently himself. Most of the time he speaks through the Savior Jesus Christ and through his prophets and apostles. We will be startled to see how quickly we recognize him, how familiar he is to us. And I love that piece of the doctrine. One of my favorite parts of President Nelson's talk about overcoming the world is when he said it, it makes his heart ache that there are so many who are leaving the gospel because they think it's hard. And then he talks about how covenants actually make life easier, that the gospel is easier than living without the gospel because it gives you this access to power. The visual that helps me is I always picture Jason and his dolly. So my husband, Jason, when we used to move frequently, he was very insistent that a dolly was the way to go. I remember many times that I would lift a big heavy stack of boxes and he would be like, Maria, use the dolly. And it was interesting to me because my brain for some reason would always think like, that's just adding more weight. You know, if you think about a dolly, especially Jason's dolly, it weighs like 20 some odd pounds. It's heavy and clunky. I never wanted to go get it. But what he was trying to help me understand is that that dolly, when I actually take the time to go get this 20 pound thing and put it under the stack of boxes, all of a sudden, Everything else that comes after is easier. The load is lighter. I can maneuver and navigate. I can even roll right up into the truck. You need the dolly. And I feel like that's what President Nelson was trying to teach us. He's saying the gospel of Jesus Christ might seem at first glance as added weight, but really what the Lord is trying to do is give you wheels. He wants to give you leverage and momentum so that you can do all the work he needs you to do. What I love about John's verses here, especially when he talks about John the Baptist, I feel like John the Baptist is an example of that for us. These next few verses, you're going to see the Pharisees coming after John. They're going to the place where he's baptizing people. Remember, he's a prophet. He's baptizing. He's calling people to repentance and getting things ready for Jesus Christ to come. And the Pharisees are questioning him the same way they're going to question the Savior. They're basically saying to him, like, who are you to baptize? Because in the Jewish tradition, they didn't need baptism. In fact, the only people that got baptized were those who converted to the faith. So he's baptizing Jews. And even though he's a Levite and he has, you know, priesthood according to them, he's, they don't understand. And they are coming after him. Pharisees are letter of the law kind of people, and this doesn't add up. But what I love is because John is so clear on who he is, who Jesus Christ is, and who God is, he is he is able to navigate around these questions. It's almost like because of the discipleship that he's taken throughout his lifetime that I'm sure he learned from his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, because of all those refining moments and discipleship in this moment, he's got a dolly and he can navigate around these Pharisees. Like you wouldn't believe you'll see it play out in the verses. So they basically, they ask him, are, who are you? Are you a prophet? Are you an Elias? Are you the savior? And he has clear careful answers. So he talks about how he is an Elias. He is a forerunner, but he's not the Elias. He's 
He's got a different work to do. And you can see it in 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. So back when Isaiah was preaching, he promised that there would be a forerunner. And John is saying very clearly, that's me. I think it's the same thing our youth are supposed to say to the world right now. We have been prophesied to come at this time. We have a work to do. That's us. You know, it's almost like they have this built up kinetic energy, just like waiting to be used. I always picture it like, you know, if you pull back on a rubber band, there's all this energy built up back here and they're just waiting to shoot forward. That's what John the Baptist is. And when you choose to make straight the way of the Lord, you're basically choosing to clear a path. We're going to talk about this in the object lessons, but what I love about making straight is it doesn't just mean this direction. It means I'm going to lower all those hills of pride down to a flat level. I'm going to take all those weaknesses and insecurities, these divots in the path, and I'm going to fill those up. I'm going to create channels of, you know, the temptations that easily beset me. I'm going to make guardrails so that I don't fall off the path. That's what I think it means to make straight the way of the Lord. And because John the Baptist has been a disciple from the womb, you know, he's been filled with the Holy Ghost from before he ever even set foot on the planet. He is someone who teaches us what it means to make straight the way of the Lord. And that's what he promises to do. He also promises to be a voice of the word as a prophet of God. In fact, Jesus Christ will call him basically the greatest prophet that's ever lived. He is someone who will speak the word. He is the voice of the word. The same way President Nelson and the other apostles are the voice of the word for us today. There's someone who takes the word, that gospel of Jesus Christ, and amplifies it so that we can hear it and understand it and apply it. That's John. When you go on the verses, you're going to see how he navigates around these Pharisees who are asking him questions. He basically just testifies of Christ. In fact, I love that this is his strategy. When opposing forces come at you and ask you questions that you can't handle, a really great way to go is to just testify of Christ. So he basically says, you have no idea what's coming. <laughs> Let me tell you about the Savior. He says in 27, well, in 26, he says, I'm baptizing with water, but another is coming among you who will baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. You can see the Joseph Smith translation on that verse. And then he says, he it is who is coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes le- whose shoe latch I'm not worthy to unloose. John knows his lane. He knows exactly what he was called to do, and he's not going to overstep, and he's not going to claim credit. He is here to amplify the word, and he does it so clearly. He says, even though I was born before him, you know, I came before him mortally, he came far before me. He is the only begotten of the Father, the firstborn. He he came way before me. And so he's trying to teach the Pharisees that. And then later you see that the next day he actually sees Jesus come. We're going to study this more next week when we study the baptism of Jesus, but you get just a glimpse of it here in John where he calls him the Lamb of God. In fact, in John is the only place where you actually see him use that phrase. I love it. We've talked about it before, and I learned a lot of this from Elder Holland, but he talks about this word choice, that by calling him the Lamb of God in this moment, John is testifying to his sacrifice that will come. Not just that he is a Messiah that will save them from trouble. They've been praying for a Messiah to save them from the Romans, to save them from oppression. And John is trying to teach them that the Savior is so much bigger that this Jesus Christ who is coming to be baptized of him is the Lamb of God. He will offer himself up as a sacrifice. And you can just see how he's trying to plant these seeds of testimony and understanding in his disciples well before they'll actually see it carried out. The other thing you'll see in these verses is that 
He testifies about the Holy Ghost descending like a dove. Again, we're going to go deeper into this next week when we study the baptism from a few of the other vantage points. But I love the visual of a dove. Um, you can go in the notes and learn more about this. This is not that the Holy Ghost transformed into a dove. The Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. He doesn't transform into an animal. But this is a sign and a token, similar to what we saw with Noah. Remember how they called the rainbow a token? It is a way for the people to recognize that the Holy Ghost is present. And I just think the visual of a dove is so beautiful for that. It is pure. It is white. It comes and goes. It is comforting and soft and quiet and Anyway, we'll go more into it next week, but stew on that as you study the verses. I think there's some profound reasons why the Holy Ghost is, his sign is of a dove. And I think there's powerful reasons behind that. When you go a little bit further, you're going to see the story of the apostles and you don't want to miss. This is as they start to become disciples of Jesus Christ and John's going to help guide them there. John the Baptist is a prophet, so his job is to point people to Jesus Christ. And he's going to do that in these verses in a really beautiful way. So he testifies of the Savior. He says to his disciples, those who have followed him, he says, And looking upon Jesus as he walked, saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is a symbol they will recognize as Jews. And then in 37, you see what happens with the disciples. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. We know that one of these disciples is Andrew, because you're going to hear him referenced. The other, most scholars think, is John, the one who wrote this book. And they become the very first disciples of the Savior. But at this point in time, they're just, they're just getting to the brink, right? It's kind of, remember we talked about the discipleship dojo and this idea of like all those martial arts movies where they see the master do something and then they, they want in and they want to be his student. I feel like they're right at the cusp of that. When they see this happen, they're saying, they follow the master and they, the master turns to them. Jesus turns to them and says, what seek ye? And I, I think they could have answered it in a hundred different ways. And I don't know if this is just what came to their mind first, or this is all they could get out. But they basically say, where dwellest thou? They want, they want to know more. They want to see more. And I think they just don't even know what to ask. And what I love is when the Savior answers them, he answers a question they should have asked. And this happens with me with Revelation all the time. Oftentimes I will pray and I will ask a question and the answer that I get is probably what I should have asked, but not exactly the answer to my question. And I think that happens with the disciples. So he says to them, come and see. And they came and they saw where he dwelt and they abode with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. After this day of abiding with the Savior, Andrew is so excited. In fact, he's so convinced that this is the Messiah that he runs to his brother, Simon, and he tells him about the Messiah. That means something remarkable happened that day. We don't know anything that happened, but part of me is like, maybe nothing remarkable happened. You know, maybe just spending a day with the Savior is enough. Maybe just seeing not just where the Savior lives, but how he lives is enough to change your heart. I think it could have been any day I think this, they could have followed the Savior any day and, and had this same testimony come to them because they came with pure hearts, hoping to believe. John had just testified to them that this is a Lamb of God. They came with that desire already in their hearts, and then they wanted to come and see. And what I love is the promise is, if you truly seek Him, if you truly come and see Him, you'll get the answer that you need. You will know that He is the Messiah. I think, you guys, this is the same reason 
that you can do that scripture drop method and get answers to prayers. So I don't know if you guys have done this before, but you know, where you like are younger in your testimony and you're seeking an answer. I did this when I was praying about Jason. So I wasn't sure if I should pursue this relationship with Jason. And I, I loved the people I had met from his family. I'd met his aunt Debbie and some of his cousins, all the people who lived in Utah, but I hadn't met his family in Ohio. And I was wondering if this was the right course for me. And so I started to pray about it. Like, Heavenly Father, should I keep pursuing this? Should I, is this the right course? And so since I wasn't terribly experienced with Revelation, I decided to do the scripture drop method. So I'm sitting on my bed in my apartment and I drop my triple combination on my bed. And you guys, the, the verse that opened up was, is DNC, I think it's 35, where he's telling them to go to the Ohio. <laughs> And literally those words just like leapt off the page at me. And I laughed out loud because I'm like, what are the chances that this is the verse that services for me? And then I realized, you know, later as I think back on that day, that that, that page could have opened to almost any page in the scripture because the answer was, hey, Maria, this is the right course. Keep going. I'm giving you a green light. And I think he could have answered that same question with a hundred different pages in that same book. It's the same thing that happens here. It doesn't matter what day they go and see the Savior. It doesn't matter what day they choose to abide with him for hours. They will come and they will see. They'll see things differently. And I love that promise that it doesn't matter where you study in scripture. It doesn't matter where you begin. When you earnestly try to build your testimony and hope to know, he will answer. He will answer in a hundred different ways. You will know. You'll gain the witness that you need. There is some refining doctrine that comes from two of our apostles that I really loved. It's in the notes. Elder Suarez and Elder Holland both talk about this come and see moment. Elder Suarez talks about how when you come and see, you need to do it like these apostles did. Well, at this point, they're disciples. They'll be apostles later. But they choose to abide with him. So if you really do want to know the Savior, if you really do want to know and have a witness of him, it's not going to happen in a flash, <laughs> at least not generally. It's going to happen over concerted effort when you choose to abide, meaning I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to show up for my callings. I'm going to show up for my covenants. I'm going to do what I can. And that's where you gain that, you know, like riveted testimony of Jesus Christ. Elder Holland takes this another step where he says, basically, no matter what you're seeking from God, if you choose to come and see the Savior first, he will answer those questions. You'll have the light you need. What I love about this is it's kind of similar to what the prophet taught, that as we choose to focus on Jesus Christ, as we choose to understand his character and who he is and our relationship with him, then all of our other questions get answered or they, you know, fall out of our importance. It's a way to kind of refine and clarify and get answers to prayers. When you have connected with God through covenants, other answers come easier. And that's the promise. So you'll see some of that in there. So the result of this influx of testimony is that they can't wait to share it with others. So like I mentioned, Andrew's going to run and tell his brother and Simon's going to have this encounter with the Savior. So you're going to learn more about the multitude of fish and the boat that's almost sinking. That's going to come in a different gospel. But in this one, you just see this simple interaction with Simon and the Savior. And the Savior calls him a stone. Now we know from the Joseph Smith translation that this isn't just a rock. Not, this is a seer stone, which means... I think the Savior sees Simon, or Simon Peter, as we'll call him later, as something so much bigger. Simon sees himself as a fisherman, and the Savior sees him as a seer. And he hasn't 
become that yet. He will, over time, become this great apostle for the Lord, the chief apostle. But he's not there yet. But I love that when the Savior sees him, he calls him a stone, even though he's not a stone yet. And what I love about that is, I think that's why we can come boldly to the throne of grace. You know how we're invited to do that? When you're repenting, you can come boldly to him because you can trust that when he looks at you, he doesn't just see how you've been the last couple months or even the last few years. He sees you bigger. He sees the full you. He sees all the things you can be when you use those gifts and talents. When you really get him in your heart, he can see you that way. And I think that's why you can come boldly. You can trust that although you see yourself as a fisherman, he sees you as a stone. He sees you so much bigger because you are so much bigger. And I love that you see that in Peter's story. You go a little bit further and you're going to learn about Philip and Nathaniel. So we'll go there next. One of my favorite talks that I read this week as I was studying is a CES devotional from Elder Holland where he talked about students. And he said, as teachers, whether in a classroom or in our own families, I think, we need to stop seeing students as cups to be filled and rather see them as fires to be ignited. And that's what I think is happening in these verses. So in the next bunch of verses, you see two more disciples come, disciples that will turn to be apostles eventually. This is Philip and Nathaniel. So it says in 43, the following day, Jesus would go forth in Galilee and find Philip. And he says unto him, follow me. A lot of the scholars I read said it's likely that Philip was friends already with Simon and Andrew and that their testimonies probably tumbled into his and that he follows. But then he turns to Nathaniel and says, that prophet that we've been praying for. The, in fact, you can see it in the verse, Philip findeth Nathanael, this is in 45, and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And this is that famous phrase where Nathanael returns and he basically says, like, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? What I love about this is in this moment, when the Savior encounters him, again, he sees him bigger than he is in this moment. Nathaniel kind of gave him a little slight here, and instead, Jesus chooses to give him this gracious compliment where he says to him, you know, you have no guile. Here is Nathaniel who has no guile. And it's just this, it's the same thing I think he did with Simon, where he's saying, I see you so much bigger. I'm not going to take you for this little comment you made right here. I'm going to see you so much bigger and who you really are. And that's what comes out here. I just, I think the the, the igniting of fires that you see in these testimonies is such a witness to me. I think it's what we see with, you know, the friends who let down the man with palsy through the roof. And we just heard about this in conference from Elder McConkie, but he talked about this idea of that, that you can bring your friends to a testimony. The reason that man with palsy is healed is because of the faith of the friends that they come and they bring him and the Savior says they're, you know, great is your faith and he heals their friend. And frees him from his sins. And I think that's what you learn in these fire igniting, this chain of testimony that happens in these verses, that when you choose to invite others, especially those who are close to you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, fires ignite and people catch on. And I think this whole section of John 1 is a testament that that's true. In fact, I was just listening with my YSAs to the young adult devotional from Elder and Sister Holland, and I loved what Sister Holland said. She said, my most earnest prayer tonight, my hope, is that you as young adults all over the world will receive his call as your personal ministry, that you'll take the hope which the Savior spoke and carry it like a torch to those who feel the world is a very dark and difficult place. That's the invitation, that we should be 
someone who ignites fires in others, especially those who are close to us, because the world is telling them that the world is dark and that there is trouble everywhere. And the message of the Savior is one of hope and peace. And you see that passed back and forth among these friends. I really love the interchange with Nathaniel at the very end. Basically, Nathaniel wants to know how the Savior knows him. Because remember, the Savior knows that he is without guile and he knows his name. And so Nathaniel says in 48, Whence knowest thou me? And Jesus answered him and said, Before Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. We don't know what this refers to. We don't have any backstory. Sometimes I wonder if this is, you know, if Nathaniel was someone who liked to keep things in his heart too. Because we don't know what happened under the fig tree. In fact, I don't know if the fig tree happened the day before yesterday or 10 years ago. We don't know. But we do know that somehow in this fig tree moment, he feels seen. And what he knows in that moment is that if the Savior could see him then, that means that this embodied version of the Savior that is standing before him must be the Son of God. It, I think this is one of those times when you see revelation come in layers. So the first layer of whatever happened under that fig tree, however long ago it was, began Nathaniel's testimony. And now hearing the Savior say that he saw him there just cements it. it you can see all these layers compacting and Nathaniel believes. In fact, he gives one of the most eloquent testimonies of the Savior that we've heard so far. So he says, Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. He doesn't just call him the Messiah. He knows who he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is divine, and that is a powerful witness. So whatever happened under that fig tree, uh, it was a revelation that got its capstone in this moment, and it'll only build from here. In fact, I love the way the Savior reacts to this. So he basically says, you have that kind of witness of me because of what happened under the fig tree? Because I said, I saw you there. And then I almost can picture him like putting his arm around Nathaniel and saying, come and see. There is so much more to behold. So that's what he says. Hereafter, ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You're going to see great things because of the faith you have. I love, I read a quote recently that said, great stories happen to people who will write them down. And I think you could say the same thing about miracles. Miracles happen to those who have eyes to see. And Nathaniel is choosing to have eyes to see. And so in this moment, he's promised that he will see, that he will see greater things than these. It's the same thing President Nelson is promising us, that we will see greater miracles than have ever been done before if we have eyes to see. And I just love that invitation. It prompts me to be a more devoted disciple. It pulls at my heart and says, like, what more can I do? How can I connect? One of the things I thought was really powerful about Nathaniel's story is he will travel farther than anybody else. He will do incredible missionary work, and he will face incredible opposition. In fact, tradition holds that he's skinned alive and dies by crucifixion, and he has a hard end. And I found myself wondering, like, is that what he saw? You know, what, what are the greater things? And then I realized... It's everything that happens in the middle, right? He sees the Savior perform miracles. He gets access to higher priesthood and all the blessings that come with it. He has access to salvation and exaltation because he knows the truth and he testifies of it. And I, there is nothing greater than that. So I, I love that no matter how you interpret Nathaniel's future, the prophecy that Jesus offers here comes true. He does see greater things than these, and he will see the heavens open, and he'll see 
angels of God ascending and descending. He will see all of it because he chose in this moment to have eyes to see. Welcome to the creative preview, guys. So those of you who are on YouTube or in the podcast, I'm going to give you a quick dose of what we're going to do on the creative side of week number three. And those of you who are in the full course after this little snippet, I'll take you through all the details. So first and foremost, my hope is to help you teach your kids about what John's calling was. So John the Baptist as a prophet was a forerunner for Christ. And the verse he uses teaches, he teaches all the Pharisees who were questioning him that his job was to make straight the way of the Lord. That's a verse you see actually in many different books of scripture. So I wanted to break it down and help my kids understand it. And the, my favorite way to do that is by sledding. So thankfully we have mountains upon mountains of snow at our disposal. But if you don't, you can teach this as an analogy. But my hope is if you live anywhere where there's snow close by, that you will grab your sleds and head out and sled together and teach your kids this incredible doctrine at the same time. The second one is a little simpler. So for this one, I want to help my kids understand the principle of come and see that as they build up their testimony and share it with their friends or their coworkers or whoever it is that they encounter in their daily life, that their fire of testimony can ignite a fire in others. We know that everybody is blessed with the light of Christ and that as we speak of Christ and teach of Christ, that light ignites in other people. And one of my favorite ways to do that is to show how to make a temporary magnet, how I can take the power of this magnet and apply it to these scissors and I'll show you how. So you're gonna want a good pair of scissors and a strong magnet and then a whole bunch of paper clips to have at your disposal and then I'll show you what to do with them. The third one is all about testimony because this week on the chart, it's testimony week. My hope with these weeks is that you'll help your kids get comfortable with bearing their testimony because we've seen the power of good testimony. When you look at people like Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, those testimonies ignite and then they catch with a whole bunch of people. So we want our kids to be comfortable with sharing their testimony, but it takes some time and it's a little intimidating at first. So one of the things I think is so great about home-centered learning is that this is a really lovely, safe ground to test those skills. And I wanted to give you some tools to pull it off. So in the printables this week, you're going to find these bloom balls, which are basically kind of like conversation starters, but focused on testimony. So that as your kids answer these questions, they'll actually be bearing testimony as they answer. They might not even realize it as they're saying it, but hopefully it will help them get some prompts going in their minds about what their testimonies are and how they can share them a little more easily. Okay, that's your supplies list. Now, for those of you in the course, we're going to go into a lot more detail right after this. Thanks for joining me, you guys. All right, that is it for week number three. So go get in your scriptures and enjoy the first chapter of John. There's, we're going to build on it next week when we study about John the Baptist and the baptism of the Savior, but this will kind of set the stage. So I hope you love it. As always, I would remind you about the Instagram Live. That's Mondays at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. I'll share a lot of the things I missed because there are a lot of things I couldn't quite fit into this video and then also walk you through some of the object lessons so you have an idea of what supplies you need and how to pull them off. And then as always, if you want to reach out to me directly and you're in the course, you can find me via the discussion boards. So just click that little black and white chat icon and ask me any question or the people in the class any question and hopefully we can help each other learn this doctrine a little bit better. It's also a great place to add your thoughts and ideas. So if you have a better way to teach this doctrine or a new way to use the bloom balls, I hope you put it on the discussion board so that we can all share ideas back and forth. 
Uh, and the last thing I would tell you is if you haven't seen it yet, there is a podcast available. So if you want to be able to consume this content without needing to focus on the screen, then go download the podcast. There's a public one that you can listen to and share that just has all the insights and then a private podcast that's for those who have, of you who are in the course so that you can listen to the insights and the creative as you're on the go and heading out to whatever it is you need to get done. So hopefully with those tools at your disposal, you can enjoy this week of study. I would remind you, those of you who are in the course, that you can find the notes and the printables below the videos. So scroll down below the titles and the descriptions and you'll find the links to the Google Docs of the notes and all the links to the printables as well. But hopefully that will give you everything you need to have an incredible week of study. All right, that's it, you guys. I will see you on Monday. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.